Hi, this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today we're talking about a topic that, if you know me, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Much like all of our topics. Um, <laughs> so many of you know that I got my start in my career teaching at a university here in Washington, D.C. called Howard. Um, and Howard, if you don't know, is a very well-known historically black college. A lot of people, when I, when I say this, they say, what's an HBCU? And HBCUs were in the news recently um, back in February when Betsy DeVos, the head of the Department of Education, she called historically black college, quote, pioneers of school choice. Ugh. Not great wording. Uh, Twitter really had a field day with this. And if you're wondering why that is, you know, you might be thinking, oh, school choice. That sounds great. It does sound good. It sounds very positive. It's a very, it's a very, um, loving reimagining of what the situation actually <laughs> is. The reason why Twitter had a field day with her comments is because her comments that HBCUs are pioneers of school choice totally overlooks the fact that HBCUs were founded because things like slavery and Jim Crow era segregation basically meant that black students had zero choice. And so HBCUs were founded to give students choice. So lifting them up as pioneers of choice is not really the best thing to do. It's a historical reimagining to sort of back up her preference for now in today's era, having more charter schools around for students to apparently have choice. Now, we can't get into that issue today because it is a thorny one. So put a bookmark in uh, charter schools I'm for, not a later, <laughs> for a later <laughs> conversation. But um, I, I think today is a great opportunity for us to understand and unpack the historical role of HBCUs, how they relate to gender, and their relevance still today. Totally. So HBCUs, they, they are super relevant um, a lot of people who, a lot of non-black people who don't really have um, an, an intimate familiarity with them, a lot of times their first uh, entry point into HBCUs is a very, very good show, uh, no longer on TV, but was a big staple in my household called A Different World. Um, that took place at a fictional HBCU in Virginia, which was a m- mixture of two real HBCUs, um, Howard University in D.C. and Spelman University in Atlanta, which is a women's college. Um, and a lot of folks know, you know, that's their first foray into what an HBCU is. So today and we're and gonna, that was a 90s spinoff, right? It was. It was a spinoff of The Cosby Show, okay. although F.U. Bill Cosby. Right. Again, bookmark that one for later. Definitely. Um, but no, it's, it's a good thing for, I think, older millennials like ourselves that we might have first stumbled upon that. Um, the, that terminology. But, Bridget, what is a historically black college and university exactly? So an HBCU is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. They are the only institutions in the U.S. that were created for the express purpose of educating black citizens. And they were really established um, a few decades after the Civil War until around 1964. Many were started with the federal government's Freedmen's Bureau with assistance from whites, primarily abolitionist missionaries and northern philanthropists who either wanted to Christianize blacks and turn them into, you know, very religious people or train them for industrial enterprises. Um, and so you really see a lot of HBCUs being connected with religion um, or some sort of a philanthropic uh, mission. And so today we have around 107 HBCUs in the U.S. and the Virgin Islands. Um, it's a it's a thing. It's a burgeoning yeah. thing. Um, probably the most well-known 
uh, is Spelman, which is a women's college in Atlanta. It's usually the number one in the rankings. Um, other big, well-known HBCUs are Howard University here in D.C., uh, Hampton University, which is in Virginia, which is where my brother went, um, North Carolina A&T University in North Carolina. Awesome. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that while those colleges and universities were historically created in an era when black Americans were not were barred, were legally barred from entering higher institutions of higher education elsewhere. Today, people of all races are attending historically black colleges and universities as well. So according to Pew, uh, the Pew Center for Research, the percentage of HBCU students who were either white, Hispanic, Asian or Pacific Islander or Native American was 17 percent in 2015, up from 13 percent in 1980. Hispanic students in particular seem to be finding a new appeal, I would say, in the historically black colleges and universities uh, because they, in particular, Hispanics, have seen their overall shares grow on HBCU campuses, uh, increasing from 1.6 in 1980 to 4.6 in 2014. So one of the things I loved um, in teaching at Howard for so long was that people would always say, you know, are you just is it just black folks teaching black students? And there certainly are more black faculty and more black students than other places I've taught. But it's really just super diverse. So Mm. we had lots of Latino students, lots of Caribbean students, lots of some white students. Um, We had European exchange students. We had really such a healthy mix of all different kinds of students who were all from different cultures and brought those cultures into the classroom in this really kind of interesting, you know, patchwork of class. So yeah. it was great. I think there's a, a specific value to that environment that attracts a lot of m- racial minorities to these institutions, which I can totally understand as opposed to the alternative PWIs, which I learned through research today. <laughs> I was like, what the heck is a PWI, which is a pr- uh, predominantly white institution. Is that right? That's right. So isn't that like the world, or at <laughs> yes. least the United States that we live in. I feel like identifying that and sort of knowing what that n- name really, acronym stands for is a healthy reminder that, oh, it's not the norm versus the minority. There's also a term for PWIs or institutions of higher education that are dominated by white people. Exactly. Um, and so I, just for full disclosure, I did not attend an HBCU. Uh, my my brother did. I applied to some, but I, I did not. Um, but some of the reasons that folks do choose HBCUs over PWIs are pretty much exactly what you think. Sort of anecdotally, many students have reported that they want to feel a sense of camaraderie with other black students and other students of color. Um, and they want the chance to feel really supported and understood uh, by you know black professors, professors of color, um, black administrators, because they feel like they're going to be getting an experience that they that they can really kind of connect with. And so they're looking for that kind of connection. I mean, think about college. It's such an identity forming time in a young adult's life. Um, for those of you who did go to college, not everybody does that. My brother, for instance, went straight into the military. But that age range of the average or the sort of typical college student, 18 to what, like 24, 25, that's a really formative time in your life to figure out who you are, what you believe in and who you who you want to become. So I love this quote from an article on her campus from Noelle, a former student at Savannah State University, which is an HBCU, mm-hmm. uh, where she says, quote, there's like a sense of unity. Everyone is so friendly and we're all able to kind of come together and share with each other the fact that we all know what it's like to be black. By attending an HBCU, 
I was able to get an education that was so relevant to my life as an African-American student. Attending PWIs all my life, it always seemed like it was abnormal to learn about my own culture and class. But my HBCU normalized this and made me feel like I got a more well-rounded education. I love, I mean, that quote really sums it all up. And her anecdotal just, you know, experience of what she felt is completely backed up by the research. According to the Journal of Black Psychology, there, they did a study all around black students who did not grow up around other black people, and they found that they're far more likely to choose schools for race-related reasons over other reasons like financial or school ranking, and that these reasons are totally, totally become part of their foundational con- concept of who they are. This is just a summary of their findings. A total of 109 undergraduate students attending an HBCU completed questionnaires assessing their race-related reasons for choosing the university and their intention to engage in race-related activities, as well as individual difference measures. Students with less contact with other blacks growing up or more central racial identities were more likely to cite race-related reasons for HBCU college choice. Furthermore, lack of contact and higher racial centrality predicted greater intention to engage in behaviors to develop racial identity, e.g. race-oriented clubs and personal reading. So basically, if you are someone who is thirsting for a connection to black culture, black life, black identity, that is going to be a a, a critical reason why Mm -hmm. you choose an HBCU, even when measured up against things like how expensive the college is or how well the college is ranked in the rankings. I think all of us at one point or another have experienced what it feels like to be other in one room or another. Totally. Imagine living your entire childhood feeling like the only kid of a certain race or one of very few in your whole community. Then to go on to college and have the opportunity to really discover who you are, not in a minority environment, but, at, you know, in a place where who you are is normalized. Completely. I think that's such a valuable thing. And it reminds me, actually, of um, Barack Obama's book, Dreams of My Father, which is all about an identity quest. OK, the whole book is like a young Barack Obama recently graduated figuring out who he is by sort of exploring the lives of his of his ancestors. And I believe he was. I believe he was commissioned to write that book while in law school. So it just reminds me of like that kind of identity quest that we're thirsting for at different times in our lives, how important it must be for black Americans in particular to have an HBCU environment to to do that in. Well, that's exactly right. So according to the research, what you're saying is right on the money. Um, According to Gallup, Black graduates of historically black colleges and universities are significantly more likely to have felt supported while in college and to be thriving afterward than their black peers who graduated from PWIs, according to the newest data from an ongoing Gallup-Purdue University study. The survey, which is the largest of its kind, collected data from 50,000 college alumni over two years in an attempt to measure whether colleges are doing enough to help students' well-being in life after they graduate. Um, And so really, the study did a deep dive on these different elements of success, financial success, whether they felt supported, whether they felt supported in college versus after college. And according to this study, um, they're they're feeling great. The difference is real, too. I mean, the the numbers here are jarring. While 29% of black graduates who did not attend an HBCU said they were, quote, thriving in financial well-being, 51% of black HBCU graduates reported doing so. So this is two years after college. I don't know who was financially thriving two years after college because it wasn't me. Definitely but, not your girl. <laughs> but 51% of 
of of black Americans or black students who went to HBCUs said they were compared to only 30 or, you know, almost 30 percent of students elsewhere. And I think a lot of that we're going to unpack this further later, but cost at HBCUs is a significant benefit as well. If what I'm reading is correct and and we're going to unpack that further, it looks like um, the tuition rates for a top tier education are way lower in across, not necessarily in every case, but are pretty affordable at HBCUs for the quality of education you're getting. Yeah, I think we should definitely dive more into that and some of the reasons why these colleges can be so useful after we take a quick break. And we're back. And let's spend some time talking about why some folks are choosing HBCUs, because a lot of people might be asking, well, it's 2017, are historically black colleges and universities even still needed or relevant? And it's a fair thing to ask, Bridget, because the numbers have been declining if you look at the percentage of black students attending college. So in 1980, all of the black Americans who were going to a degree-granting institution Of all of them, about 17% were choosing HBCUs. By 2000, that share, that percentage, had declined to 13%. And in 2015, the last time the the Pew Research measured this fact, the number was down to 9%. So while it looks like the percentage has definitely shifted over time, I want to highlight that the number of people overall attending colleges and universities If you think about the flexibility of online degree granting institutions and the kinds of flexible needs for the average college student nowadays, it's possible that that percentage is shrinking because more African-American students are going to college overall. Yeah. And think about the different opportunities that that black folks just didn't have before. Right. So if you have more opportunities, more more chances to go to different kinds of schools. Did you almost say school choice? Uh, if you I have did. more school choice, Bridget. <laughs> That's a topic I'll I'll talk all day, girl. You don't even know. I think Bridget just said she's pro school choice, y'all. Do not quote y'all. me on that. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, okay. Sorry, I interrupted you, but I had to call. No, yeah, that was that, that was a good call. That was a good call. I um, mean, so it's it's cool to see these numbers, even though they are declining overall. It's cool to see that it, enrollment in HBCUs actually has risen. Right. So the the percentages have gone down, but that can be a really misleading fact that's used to discredit the the relevance of HBCUs. So don't let those percentages be used to mislead you, because in reality, enrollment at HBCUs, including enrollment from non-Black students, has risen overall. So the NCES figures have shown that in f- the fall of 2015, the combined total enrollment of all HBCUs was 293,000, compared with only 234,000 in 1980. There's also some new findings that historically black colleges and universities have seen a spike in enrollment due in part to the Black Lives Matter movement and increased public visibility around racial tension in America. Totally. I mean, that completely jives with what I've seen sort of anecdotally, Um, particularly at Howard. They are like if you know anything about Howard, you know, their students are super, super civically engaged. These are the kinds of students when I taught there that were coming up to me at the end of class saying, Professor Todd, Will you sign our petition to get the university to stop using Kimberly Clark brand toilet paper products because they fund private prisons? You know, <laughs> stuff that I just wasn't doing when Professor I was a student. Todd. Oh, I know. I, I miss being called Aww. that so much. Sometimes I... I'll call you Professor Todd yeah, whenever you want. Sometimes I, I <laughs> say that in my head just to make myself feel better. Um, but and honestly, you... I remember 
this being in the news kind of recently, um, I think last year, the actress Taraji P. Henson, who yeah. plays Cookie on mm-hmm. Empire, she told came forward with the story of her son, who I think was at UCLA, was pulled over and she felt like it had been a racial profiling incident. And she said that, you know, I don't pay thousands upon thousands of dollars to send my son to this great school in L.A. for him to get racially profiled. And so she, I don't know if she ended up actually doing it, but she said that she was going to pull him from UCLA and put him into Howard because she thought Howard would be a safer place for him. Mm. And so I cannot speak for whether or not he would have a less of a chance having some sort of negative police interaction Mm -hmm. driving around the streets of D.C. versus UCLA, but that was certainly how she felt. So certainly this, this, this more visibility of the movement for black lives has made HBCUs you know, push them into the forefront in a way like they have never been. Especially from a parent's perspective. Mm -hmm. I think it, you know, I think the police brutality, the visibility around police brutality, which has been an issue for much longer than uh, the mainstream media has made it an issue or made it a priority. Um, But I think the more we see what's happening, it's totally rational for parents to be concerned and to seek out the kind of camaraderie that comes with a more diverse community on campus. And this is true. The numbers bear this out as well. In an article on PBS from October 2016, they said that HBCUs were reporting double-digit bumps in freshman enrollment at Virginia State. Where That's the- where my mom went. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Nice. They had an increase of about 30% wow. in one year. In Central State University, one of two HBCUs in Ohio had a 21% increase. North Carolina Shaw, the South's oldest HBCU, which went from 402 freshmen last year to 600 this fall, an increase of 49%. So the numbers are up for sure. So, you know, we might not, we might have more choices than we did in Jim Crow era America when HBCUs were a necessary, uh, a necessary part of making opportunities for higher education available to African Americans. But that doesn't mean that they don't serve a really critical purpose in today's America, too. Completely. So obviously, a lot of folks are still finding HBCUs relevant. And I think one of the biggest reasons that they are are finding them so relevant is cost. HBCUs graduate more low-income students than their than PWIs, according to a study from Education Trust that looked at um, PWIs versus HBCUs. Roughly half of the nation's HBCUs have a freshman class where three quarters of the students are from low-income backgrounds, while just one percent of the 676 non-HBU studied serve as high serve as high a percent of low-income students. Wow, um, which is really something. I mean, if you are a student who needs help paying for school can't just, you know, write a check to pay for things, that might be a reason why an HBCU might be something to look at. Absolutely. And I love that because HBCUs like Xavier, which we read about in the New York Times here, have accomplished providing extremely good numbers in terms of producing graduates, specifically black graduates in the STEM fields, whether it's doctors or physicists or biologists, They've done all of this. They've become one of the top four institutions graduating black pharmacists, for instance, the third in the nation in terms of graduating black graduates who go on to earn doctorates in science and engineering. They're basically killing it with STEM without a hefty price tag that is typically associated with going to a high performing uh, STEM school. So this is fascinating because... 
Their tuition is $19,800 a year. Wow. Considerably less than that of many private colleges and flagship public universities, even. They've done all of this without expansive high-tech facilities because its entire science program is actually housed in a single complex. Which blows my mind, yeah, right? Yeah, I love that. And I also love that they aren't, you know, you might be thinking, well, they're getting the kids who have been groomed to go to college their whole lives. That's actually not true. Um, most of Xavier's students are the first in their families to attend college, and more than half of them come from lower-income homes. They really accomplished this, this really incredible feat of turning out the next generation of black physicists, you know, doctors. Um, and really, you know, 65% of all black physicians and half of all black engineers graduate from HBCUs. So right. HBCUs are really foundational and building this, you know, black middle class. Yeah, especially when it comes to the STEM fields, which we know are so important for class mobility right now in this totally. historical moment of our economy. Totally. Um, I was really excited at Howard. One of my students um, was going to dental school, and I wrote him his recommendation to get into Howard Dental School. And I always said, when you become a dentist, you've got to give me all free dental work <laughs> for life, right? Get, hook you up with some uh, <laughs> something fancy? Yes. I mean, I have, you know... <laughs> Solid gold teeth. Yeah. I want a Swinty grill. Can we uh can we call him up? Now? I would like that actually. <laughs> I think we could fit S M N T Y. There we go. Yep, I see it already. All right. So I wanna really dive into how HBCUs interact with or intersect, one might say, with gender. But I think we should maybe take a quick break and because there's a lot more to talk about where that comes from. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after this quick break. And we're back. And we have loved talking about all the ways in which HBCUs are wonderful and are killing it and are are just great. But this is stuff mom never told you. And it wouldn't really be our podcast if we weren't getting slightly enraged on occasion. <laughs> so here we are. We got to talk about gender on historically black colleges and universities campuses, because like most things around intersectionality, the intersection of race and gender and how that plays out at HBCUs is quite complicated. Very complicated. So one thing to know is that on most campuses of HBCUs, there's more women than men. Um, 61.5% of HBCU students identified as female in 2014. Uh, but that doesn't mean that this is all a rosy picture and there's not gender issues. Quite the opposite, actually. The way that gender issues play out on HBCU campuses can be pretty toxic. So I'm not saying this because I want to um, paint the picture that high-profile incidents of sexual assault on campuses means that they're happening... But there's an, I'm not trying to paint a portrait. I just think it needs to be lifted that a lot of HBCU students go there because they are looking for a certain kind of positive experience. They're looking for a particular and specific experience around their culture and identity. And they get to campus and find that because of gender issues and because of gender intersections, they do not get that experience. And by they, we're talking pretty pretty focused here on black women. Correct. So living again at that intersection of race and gender being a black woman here again is an especially challenging thing because instead of that safe space that is afforded to black men on HBCUs, which is part of the reason people go to HBCUs, uh, women have faced this very challenging uh, dichotomy. One, that 
racial identity, that camaraderie, one might even call it sisterhood or mm-hmm. brotherhood, with those of your sort of minority race becoming sort of a majority is one thing. But what happens when uh, sexual assault is running rampant on campus, as I might add, is happening on almost every campus nationwide. Like I, there are very few opportunities and we should we definitely have plans in the works to talk more about sexual assault on campus. Um, but at HBCUs, it's especially complex. It is especially complex. And I think that this is illustrated so, so well in this uh, BuzzFeed deep dive that is really a must read um, that was published back in January of 2016 by Anita Badejo. Um, and really it points out the ways that on one college campus or two college campuses, Morehouse and and Spelman in Atlanta, this is all kind of playing out in these really toxic ways. But basically, the women at Spelman College have been complaining about the men of Morehouse College, which is their, uh, they have a brother-sister school relationship. It's unofficial, but... Unofficial, but... Understanding, yeah. Yeah. Unofficial, but understood. They've been complaining about sexual assaults happening by the 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 students at their quote brother school um and really these these complaints have been going unheard right. and it's so troubling and by complaints we mean illegal assaults have been going unprosecuted yeah. and oftentimes end up not just being like not not only is the administration silencing its victims but i think that the headline here says it so well the headline of buzzfeed's article is quote Our hands are tied because of this damn brother-sisterhood thing. So Spelman College says, oh, it happened on Morehouse's campus? We can't do anything about it, which to me is not okay, not valid from the start. And then in some of the cases unpacked in this really chilling expose, trigger warning, by the way, we should probably have said that a while ago, but this is where it gets even more, I think, triggering. After dealing with a rape, someone here uh, named just by her first name, Melanie, who's profiled at the start of this article, she was told that an independent investigator based in Massachusetts, which is far a ways away from where this all went down in Atlanta, who without ever meeting her in person had come to the conclusion that she had not, in fact, been raped, despite the fact that both parties agreed Melanie had said, quote, no, repeatedly. Later, she learned that the college also classified her reported rape as a case of simple battery. Mm. And so this is a small example of a macro level problem that's gone unheard, undealt with, un- unresolved from the administration standpoint. This all sort of came to a head when vice president or former vice president Joe Biden was on his It's On Us tour. It's On Us is the institution or the effort started under the Obama administration to engage men in the conversation around consent and preventing sexual assault and rape. He came to speak on the campuses of Morehouse and Spelman together. And this was to an audience of women who many of whom are survivors of assault who reported their assaults but have been left to wrestle, quote, not only with a campus adjudication process that felt didn't serve them justice, but also with a deep guilt for having turned in one of their Morehouse brothers. And that's a really good example of how the intersection of race really makes this such a a tricky issue. Um, so after Biden spoke, a Morehouse student reportedly circulated this really disgusting viral kind of faux contract that he called, quote, a hoe contract. And so it's like a handwritten thing. You can find it on Twitter. He wrote, I, you know, the 
insert name here, allow Graves residents, you know, insert male name here, in room, blah, 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 to perform any and all sexual behavior on me from the time I walk in, then you put the time, till the time I leave and visitation is over. By signing this, I will not spread misleading truths and or ignorant lies if found in violation of this consent form. I, blank, will be indicted and prosecuted accordingly, as well as be exposed on campus as a lying bitch. Can we say bitch? Sure, in this context. Yeah. I mean, that's their words. Uh, Image and integrity is valued highly at Morehouse, especially Graves Hall. By signing this, I name here and I name here are keeping both. Uh, And that's real. I mean, like, did he learn nothing at that rap, at that It's On Us talk? If this was my brother or son... I would be, I would, I would just wonder where it all went wrong. And so you can really see, I think what that, what that contract really raises is the way that perhaps a lot of Morehouse students feel as though women who report sexual assaults, report rapes, call out troubling, toxic behavior on the part of men, they feel as though they are violating the integrity of the Morehouse Spellman sort of, uh, ecosystem that they're that they're bucking that tradition and you can really see the ways that that holding on to that tradition can be a kind of mm. a kind of way of shrugging off really harmful dangerous behavior on the part of these right. men well it also presumes that these women are lying totally so you're a liar you're dragging some elite male reputation through the dirt how dare you when we're here to lift each other up that's really the thing totally. right it's like you got to be there you got to have each other's backs uh in a world that doesn't have our backs collectively based right. on race you're going to drag me through the mud uh because of what you think was a rape i, I get that s- defensiveness it's horrifying the rationale is disgusting and warped but it it it, it totally doesn't understand obviously what consent is all about. And, um, and I don't know. I just putting black women in that position of feeling like reporting a rape means ruining the reputation of the next potential Barack Obama. And I think, I mean, that's, I, I have personally felt that before. I think a lot of black women have spoken up about feeling that way that, you know, we live in a society where black men, black people in general, but black men are, you know, kind of set up to fail and society wants to see them go down and society, you know, is set up to treat them badly. And so you don't want to feel like another person adding on to that. So I can definitely understand that. But that's no reason to not report an assault, not report a rape, not call out some really harmful, toxic behavior. Yeah. And adding on to that, it's it's this notion that you're living in a world that already assumes black men are are um, violent. Exactly. Or this like black male raping the white woman thing that has historically been around. You don't want to perpetuate that, but that's, you know, that's not a reason to not report what's happened to you. So just some stats about um, what's going down with the sexual assaults on campuses, HBCUs versus PWIs. So there actually are less instances of sexual assault reported on HBCUs when compared to PWIs, but that stat is actually kind of misleading because black women I think for a lot of the reasons we were just unpacking, are less likely to report sexual assaults than their white counterparts in general. Um, yeah, only 17% of black women report instances of sexual assault to the police, as opposed to 44% of white women. So either there is a significant difference in who's being raped, or more likely there's a significant difference between who feels comfortable or privileged enough to go to the police and be taken seriously. Totally. Or entitled to a police officer who's going to take their 
their um their crime seriously. And this is an issue that specifically at Spelman and Morehouse goes back decades. In 1996, a Spelman student reported being gang-raped by four Morehouse students, which spawned some tough talk at Morehouse. Again, a lot of talk here, not a lot of action that we've seen, about the unacceptability of abusing women. Yet, at the same time, there was also vocal, overwhelming support on campus for the men, including one suggestion from a chapel dean during a worship service that, quote, Women bring abuse upon themselves because of their attitudes and their dress. Ugh, that's so disgusting and regressive and toxic. I mean, I can't even imagine if my, if a, if a dean stood in front of my student body and said that, I would have probably burst into tears, but I would have been so angry. I would have walked out. I would have been, yeah. Yeah. I mean, storm out. That's, but who, I mean, who knows? He's in a position of power there. That's, that's sort of the leadership. That's a reflection of the leadership at Morehouse. Completely. And obviously this was 1996, so we can only hope that things have changed there. Um, anyone who knows someone or goes to Morehouse, please tell us how things have changed, hopefully. But this is an issue that seems to be lasting at Spelman and Morehouse in particular. And, uh, the same challenges are faced by lots of different students on HBCU campuses. Yeah. And I, I just think that you really, Going back to this idea that at Spelman, black women are really expected to support, quote unquote, their brothers, quote unquote, even if they are toxic, abusive, whatever. Um, this is another quote from the BuzzFeed article. At Spelman, students must balance, balance the empowerment that comes from being on, on a campus full of young black women with the expectation that they nevertheless must align themselves with the interests of their brothers next door. One thing about Spelman that has to be made clear is that it's a woman's college, but it is not a feminist college. And this is a quote from the an associate director of a women's research organization on campus at Spelman. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so troubling. Like, as a woman, as a black woman, thinking that you're going to get this this community of black women to support you and then getting to campus and finding, oh, actually... Your well-being is far less important than the well-being of our our elite, the elite black men that we are yeah. that we are trying to churn out. Absolutely, and in fact, this is internalized in a lot of Spelman students too. I I found it really troubling to hear that the Spelman 2015 valedictorian said when describing the archetypical Spelman woman to BuzzFeed News. She said she's middle class, she's southern, she has good manners, she's heterosexual, she's not deviant in any way. You know, this sort of regressive, hyper-religious undertones uh, of what it means to be a good, proper woman is alive and well in a lot of these campuses. Yeah, I mean, if you take that further, I have to know that uh, Spellman has a bit of an uh, like an unofficial dress code for official um, events. Um Pants are, you can wear pants, but it's frowned upon. Pearls are, you know, encouraged. And I think, you know, when I read this quote of the, of the typical Spellman woman, this is, I feel like, I, I feel like I know this girl. I know this woman. I know yeah. the southern, you know, refined, middle class, wearing pearls, heterosexual, very important, and no deviant behavior of any kind. Yeah. So you're just a, you know, I mean, I, I know this woman. I'm not, I tried to be this woman yeah. for a while, but I'm not this, I'm none of those things. No, she's a deviant. I love her that way. Yeah. No, but this is Coco from Dear White People. It is. It this is, is totally yeah. Coco, aka Calandria. Yes. From Dear White People, which kept coming to mind as we discuss these different, 
archetypical identities of being black on campus. Um, I would love to unpack Dear White People at some point, too, because, man, I love that movie, first of all, was amazing. Did yeah. you see the movie? I saw, I saw the movie and the show. And the show. Me, yeah. too. I'm obsessed. You should all go watch it. So listen, I'm not trying to paint HBCUs as hotbeds of campus sexual assaults. I just think it's very telling that black women who attend HBCUs, they come looking for community and safety, and they realize that's not what they've gotten, oftentimes too late. I found this quote from the BuzzFeed article to be really telling. I think that that's the travesty, that you have black women and men applying and going to HBCUs, believing they're going to be safe, but they're really only honestly thinking about racism. And this is a quote from Aisha Simmons, who is a visiting scholar from the University of Pennsylvania and a filmmaker whose documentary, No, focused on black female rape survivors. And even to extend it beyond the experience of students at HBCUs, that same dynamic between men, women, and black men and black women seems to be replicating itself on the administrative level because there really aren't very many female HBCU presidents, which is troubling because if we had more women in charge, quite frankly, I think that might lead to a better representation of the issues that women on HBCUs are facing. But Morehouse College President John Wilson has been dogged by rumors and calls for his termination for more than two years, yet he remains in place with cursory affirmations of support from board and alumni officers without any detail about how he's earned it. But women, on the other hand, in HBCU presidencies have not received the same opportunity to get it wrong and to learn how to get it right. Again, we're we're up against that sort of glass cliff of... You can't mess up at work the same way a male in the same position is given uh, the opportunity to, to redeem himself. Women, on the other hand, are told to get out. Now, this isn't to say that women don't earn the right to be fired, as is written by Crystal uh, DeGregory and Jarrett Carter Sr. on HBCU Buzz on Medium.com. But really, it's not saying that women haven't earned the right to be fired or haven't have earned the right to be judged with fewer or softened metrics of success against their male counterparts. It is to say that HBCUs are in no position collectively to brand women as executive failures worthy of quick removal, while men can stick it out for a more appropriate time and approach. So this problem, this gender problem that is playing out when it comes to campus sexual assault is replicating itself when it comes to leadership. And obviously women in leadership across industries and across colleges run into the similar problems. But I think it would behoove a, a brave HBCU to really take an active role in recruiting and developing more female leadership to make a safer environment for the female students on campus. Totally. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I also found it really interesting that there's only two uh, women's studies programs at all of the HBCUs in the United States. All of them. Spelman and Bennett College. And yeah, it just shows the ways that this toxic gender stuff can really be a top-down thing. And so mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't, I, I agree, it doesn't necessarily start with the students. It can start at the, at the higher levels of the administration. And unfortunately, as we talk about higher levels of administration, sadly, we must indeed utter his name on this podcast once more. Donald Trump has something to do with HBCUs nowadays, doesn't he, Bridget? He does. <laughs> First of all, you may have seen that really weird picture. It was a photo shoot where Kellyanne Conway is sitting on the couch with her shoes off, with her feet underneath her, her body. Really strange People picture. People made a bigger deal out of her. I, I felt bad for her, but that's a different episode. Like... Maybe we shouldn't judge her so much in this photo, but 
fair. I mean, it was awkward. Like it, it was respect awkward. Yeah. Respect the office, kind of awkward, but not like. Yeah, I didn't. Please don't call her her like dirty slurs because oh, she's God, like sitting that way with a short. Skirt. Of course, of course, of course. It just was I, like yeah. the picture was awkward. I'll just put it that I way. I think the picture was awkward before she was even in it. The, if, you, if she wasn't even in also, it, I feel like that whole this from that picture that whole day seemed what awkward. Happened? Why did this happen, Bridget? Help me understand this. One of the things Donald Trump, when he first got into office, he was very, very vocal about the fact that he thought, you know, oh, the Obama administration really failed HBCUs and all of this, and he vowed to turn it all around. He said, "I'm going to do things differently. This is appalling." So, so he gathers all these HBCU presidents in the room. They're told they're going to be able to, you know, have the president's ear, and the president cares so much about this issue and yada, 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 they all basically reported that they didn't really get to talk that much, that they they said at most, you know, two minutes to the president. And what's interesting is that after all that um, grandstanding about how he was going to be better for HBCUs than President Obama was, his America First budget actually slices the federal education spending for HBCUs by 13.5%. And it also claims to maintain, quote unquote, funding for minority institutions and HBCUs at around $492 million, but that's the exact same amount that the previous administration had initially budgeted. So he made this whole big show about how he was going to, you know, yeah. do right by HBCUs and then and be better than, than the Obama administration was, but then totally didn't. And so these HBCU leaders were vocally, like, pretty disappointed by this. Of course. And it seems so, like, such a press ploy to just have him in the White House early on, come together. Let's bring people of African-American backgrounds together into the White House early on to show our support. And it was just a disgusting example of just trying to take credit for intentions that I don't even think were well-intentioned. You know what I mean? Like, they, yeah. they, they weren't coming from a good place to begin with. And then furthermore, to, to sort of drag Obama on HBCUs is not quite accurate either, because the New America Foundation actually estimates that due to the Obama administration's additional discretionary spending that was added to the HBCU figure, that the actual sum was around $577 million, which is 15% more than... Uh, what Donald Trump is coming in at. So he's not even matching what Obama did. He's actually giving HBCUs a pay cut after they came to the White House at his invitation to express the need for more support because they're already operating on less than what they need. And to add to that, those very same leaders that he used basically for a photo op, a lot of them after that meeting, they came out and said, we feel like we got used. We feel like we were used for a photo op and we're disappointed with this. And to sort of drive home how I, how disingenuous I feel like his comments on HBCUs were, he then went on to suggest that funding for HBCUs might even be unconstitutional. Ugh. He said, according to this article on NY Mag, Trump suggested that such funding was not constitutional on the account of it allocated benefits, quote, on the basis of race, ethnicity, or gender. So after this big production of I'm going to be so great for HBCUs. I'm going to be better than Obama was. Yeah. He went on to be like, wait, do we even need to fund you guys? I feel like awful. It was so obviously somebody in the communications office's idea to have this photo happen. And then Kellyanne Conway, the head of comms, accidentally ruined the entire news cycle. And then he went back and let his true colors shine through by saying, like, actually, let's not fund them at all in the casual offhand way that this man legislates or presidents. I don't know what the verb is, but whatever it is, they're not doing it so well. Because just from a pure communication standpoint, even if we're able to for a moment, 
uh, suspend the moral and and ethical and ra- like racism qualms that are all tied up in that. That's just a bad press strategy all around. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. It seems like that's what we get from this administration. Just bad maybe optics, bad press, bad tweets. Maybe he'll tweet his way out of it. Yes, but let's not talk about Donald Trump anymore. It gets me too angry, as you can probably <laughs> tell. It gets my blood boiling. So, Sminty listeners, we want to hear from you. Did any of y'all go to HBCUs? Why? If you did not go to an HBCU, why not? Do you work at one? Um, let us know. We want to know your thoughts on HBCUs. Do you think they're relevant? Are they needed? Why or why not? You can tag us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. You can tweet at us at Mom Stuff Podcast, or you can email us at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. 